Speeches and Extracts from Speeches of the Author in the Senate of the United States during the First Session of the 31st Congress, 1849-1850. Speech of Mr. Davis of Mississippi in the Senate of the United States on the Resolutions of Compromise proposed by Mr. Clay, January 29, 1850. I do not rise to continue the discussion, but as it has been made an historical question as to what the position of the Senate was twelve years ago, and as with great regret I see this, the conservative branch of the government, tending toward that fanaticism which seems to prevail with the majority in the United States, I wish to read from the journals of that date the resolutions then adopted, and to show that they went further than the Honorable Senator from Kentucky has stated. I take it for granted, from the date to which the Honorable Senator has alluded, he means the resolutions introduced by the Honorable Senator from South Carolina, Mr. Calhoun, not now in his seat, and to which the Senator from Kentucky proposed certain amendments. Of the resolutions introduced by the Senator from South Carolina, I will read the fifth in the series, that to which the Honorable Senator from Kentucky must have alluded. It is in these words, Resolved that the intermeddling of any state or states or their citizens to abolish slavery in the district or any of the territories on the ground or under the pretext that it is immoral or sinful or the passage of any act or measure of congress with that view would be a direct and dangerous attack on the institutions of all the slaveholding states such is the general form of the proposition it was variously modified but never in my opinion improved on the twenty-seventh, the fifth resolution being again under consideration, Mr. Clay of Kentucky moved to amend the amendment by striking out all after the word resolved, and insert that the interference by the citizens of any of the states with a view to the abolition of slavery in this district is endangering the rights and security of the people of the district, and that any act or measure of Congress designed to abolish slavery in this district would be a violation of the faith implied in the sessions by the states of Virginia and Maryland, a just cause of alarm to the people of the slaveholding states, and have a direct and inevitable tendency to disturb and endanger the Union. And resolved that it would be highly inexpedient to abolish slavery within any district of country set apart for the Indian tribes where it now exists, or in Florida, the only territory of the United States in which it now exists, because of the serious alarm and just apprehensions which would be thereby excited in the states sustaining that domestic institution, because the people of that territory have not asked it to be done, and, when admitted into the Union, will be exclusively entitled to decide that question for themselves, because it would be in violation of the stipulations of the treaty between the United States and Spain of the 22nd of February, 1819, and, also, because it would be in violation of a solemn compromise, made at a memorable and critical period in the history of this country, by which, while slavery was prohibited north, it was admitted south of the line of 36 degrees and 30 minutes north latitude. But this resolution was not finally adopted. Upon the motion of Mr. Buchanan to amend said amendment, by striking out the second clause thereof, commencing with the word resolved, it was determined in the affirmative, and finally the resolution which here follows was substituted in place of the second clause. 
that the interference by the citizens of any of the states with a view to the abolition of slavery in this district is endangering the rights and security of the people of the district, and that any act or measure of Congress designed to abolish slavery in this district would be a violation of the faith implied in the sessions by the states of Virginia and Maryland, a just cause of alarm to the people of the slaveholding states, and have a direct and inevitable tendency to disturb and endanger the Union. This was the form in which the resolution was finally adopted, passing by a vote of 36 to 8. Here, then, was fully and broadly asserted the danger resulting from the interference in the question of slavery in the District of Columbia, as trenching upon the rights of the slaveholding states. Twelve years only have elapsed, yet this brief period has swept away even the remembrance of principles then deemed sacred and necessary to secure the safety of the Union. Now an honorable and distinguished senator, to whom the country has been induced to look for something that would heal the existing dissensions, instead of raising new barriers against encroachment, dashes down those heretofore erected and augments the existing danger. A representative from one of the slaveholding states raises his voice for the first time in disregard of this admitted right. Nor, Mr. President, did he stop here. The boundary of a state, with which we have no more right to interfere than with the boundary of the state of Kentucky, is encroached upon. The United States, sir, as the agent for Texas, has a right to settle the question of boundary between Texas and Mexico. Texas was not annexed as a territory, but was admitted as a state, and, at the period of her admission, her boundaries were established by her Congress. She, by the terms of annexation, gave to the United States the right to define her boundary by treaty with Mexico, but the United States, in the treaty made with Mexico subsequent to the war with that country, received from Mexico not merely a cession of the territory that was claimed by Texas, but much that lay beyond the asserted limits. Shall we, then, acting simply as the cogent of Texas in the settlement of this question of boundary, take from the principal for whom we acted that territory which belongs to her, to which we asserted her title against Mexico, and appropriate it to ourselves? Why, sir, it would be a violation of justice, and of a principle of law which is so plain that it does not require one to have been bred to the profession of law to understand it. The principle I refer to is that an agent cannot take for his own benefit anything resulting from the matter in controversy, after having acquired it as belonging to the principle for whom he acts. The agent cannot appropriate to himself rights acquired for his client. The right of Texas, therefore, to that boundary was made complete by the Treaty of Peace, which silenced the only rival claim to the territory. It was distinctly defined by the acts of her Congress before the time of annexation, and I have only to refer to those acts to show that the boundary of Texas was the real Bravo del Norte, from its mouth to its source. What justice or even decent regard for fairness can there be, now that Texas has acceded to annexation upon certain terms, to propose a change of boundary in violation of those terms, and by the power we hold over her as a part of the Union? Can this power extend so far as to take from her a portion of her territory, or to assert that there is a portion to which she is not entitled? These constitute with me two great objections to the propositions of the Honorable Senator from Kentucky. 
but without stating all the objections that I have, and they are very many, I will merely point out a few of the prominent points to which I object in the argument of the Senator. He assumes as facts things which are mere matters of opinion, and, I think, of erroneous and injurious opinion. But deferring the discussion to another occasion, I desire at present merely to notice the assertion of the Honorable Senator that slavery would never, under any circumstances, be established in California. This, though stated as a fact, is but a mere opinion, an opinion with which I do not accord. It was to work the gold mines on this continent that the Spaniards first brought Africans to the country. The European races now engaged in working the mines of California sink under the burning heat and sudden changes of the climate to which the African race are altogether better adapted. The production of rice, sugar, and cotton is no better adapted to slave labor than the digging, washing, and quarrying of the gold mines. We, sir, have not asked that slavery should not be established in California. We have only asked that there should be no restriction, that climate and soil should be left free to establish the institution or not, as experience should determine. Sir, after the agitation of the subject within these halls and elsewhere has prevented the introduction of slavery, by preventing the emigration of slaveholders with their property, are we now to be told that the question is settled? More than that, when we have acquired territory over which the Constitution of the United States is thereby extended, and which the citizens of the United States have a right to occupy, and to establish therein what laws they please, in accordance with the principles of the Constitution, in which they have a right to establish what institutions they please, it is now claimed that the municipal regulations which previously existed shall still govern the people, and that a portion of the citizens of the United States shall thus be precluded from going there with their property. This rule has, however, in discussion here, only been applied to the property of slaveholders, as though slaves were the only property under the laws of Mexico prohibited from entering California. It is to be remembered that the late Secretary of the Treasury, in a report to Congress, stated that the Mexican law prohibited the entrance of some sixty articles of commerce. This was prohibition by law of Congress, and slavery has never been so prohibited. It never has been prohibited by the Mexican Congress in California, and the only prohibition ever issued was that contained in the edict of a usurper under the specious pretext that it was necessary in order to oppose the invasion of the country by spain this decree was recognized by a subsequent congress so far as to pass a law authorizing payment for slaves so liberated it was the emancipation of all the slaves in mexico an act if you please of abolition not of prohibition not whatever construction may be placed upon it, done in the forms of law and requirements of their constitution. But we have not proposed to inquire into the legality of the abolition. Neither has any Southern man asked that that decree should be repealed, or that those liberated under its provisions should be returned to slavery. We only claim that there shall be an equality of immunities and privileges among citizens of all parts of the United States, that Mexican law shall not be applied so as to create inequality between citizens by preventing the immigration of any. But, sir, we are called on to receive this as a measure of compromise. Is a measure in which we of the minority are to receive nothing a compromise? 
I look upon it as but a modest mode of taking that, the claim to which has been more boldly asserted by others, and that I may be understood upon this question, and that my position may go forth to the country in the same columns that convey the sentiments of the Senator from Kentucky, I here assert that never will I take less than the Missouri Compromise Line extended to the Pacific Ocean, with specific recognition of the right to hold slaves in the territory below that line, and that before such territories are admitted into the Union as states, slaves may be taken there from any of the United States at the option of their owners. I can never consent to give additional powers to a majority to commit further aggressions upon the minority in this Union, and will never consent to any proposition which will have such a tendency, without a full guarantee or counteracting measure is connected with it. I forbear commenting at any further length upon the propositions embraced in the resolutions at this time. Remarks of Mr. Davis of Mississippi in the Senate of the United States on the question of the reception of a memorial from inhabitants of Pennsylvania and Delaware, presented by Mr. Hale of New Hampshire, praying that Congress would adopt measures for an immediate and peaceful dissolution of the Union. February 8, 1850. Mr. President, I rise merely to make a few remarks upon the right of petition, and to notice the error which I think has pervaded the comparisons that have been instituted between certain resolutions which were presented by the Senator from North Carolina and the petition which it is now proposed shall be received. The resolutions which were presented from North Carolina were published in yesterday's paper, and after reading them, I think they refer to a state of case which the people of North Carolina might properly present as their grievance. They were resolutions for preserving the Union, calling upon Congress to take all measures in its power for that purpose. This was all legitimate. They had a right to petition Congress for a redress of grievances, and if it were in our power to redress those grievances, if it were within the legitimate functions of our legislation, we were bound to receive the petition and respectfully consider it. This case is exactly the reverse. Here is no grievance, unless the Union is a grievance to those who petition, and they call upon Congress to do that which everyone must admit Congress has no power to do, to dissolve peaceably the Union of the States. Then, sir, in the first place there is no grievance, in the next place there is no power, and beyond all that it is offensive to the Senate. It is offensive to recommend legislation for the dissolution of the Union offensive to the senate and to the whole country if this union is ever to be dissolved it must be by the action of the states and their people whatever power congress holds it holds under the constitution and that power is but a part of the union congress has no power to legislate upon that which will be the destruction of the whole foundation upon which its authority rests I recollect a good many years ago that the Senator from Massachusetts, Mr. John Davis, who addressed the Senate this morning, very pointedly described the right of petition as a very humble right, as the mere right to beg. This is my own view. The right peaceably to assemble I hold as the right which it was intended to grant to the people. That was the only right which had ever been denied in our colonial condition. The right of petition had never been denied by Parliament. 
it was intended only to secure to the people i say the right peaceably to assemble whenever they choose to do so with intent to petition for a redress of grievances but sir the right of petition though but a poor right the mere right to beg may yet be carried to such an extent that we are bound to abate it as a nuisance if the avenues to the capital were to be obstructed so that members would find themselves unable to reach the halls of legislation because hordes of beggars presented themselves in the way calling for relief it would be a nuisance that would require to be abated and congress in self-defense would be compelled to remove them but such a collection of beggars would not be half so great an evil as the petitions presented here on the subject of slavery they disturb the peace of the country they impede and pervert legislation by the excitement they create. They do more to prevent rational investigation and proper action in this body than any, if not all, other causes. Good, if ever designed, has never resulted, and it would be difficult to suppose that good is expected ever to flow from them. Why, then, should we be bound to receive such petitions to the detriment of the public business, or, rather, why are they presented? I am not of those who believe we should be turned from the path of duty by out-of-door clamor, or that the evil can be removed by partial concession. To receive is to give cause for further demands, and our direct and safe course is rejection. Yes, sir, their reception would serve only to embarrass Congress, to disturb the tranquility of the country, and to peril the union of the states. By every obligation, therefore, that rests upon us under the Constitution, upon every great principle upon which the Constitution is founded, we are bound to abate this as a great and growing evil. This petition, sir, was well described by the Senator from Pennsylvania as being spurious, and I have been assured of the fact from other sources of information that petitions are sent round in reference to other subjects, of temperance generally, and after a long list of names has been obtained the caption is cut off and the list of signatures attached to an abolition caption and sent here to excite one section of the union against the other to disturb the country and distract the legislation of congress to execute which we have our seats in this chamber for the reasons first stated i voted to receive the resolutions that were presented by the senator from north carolina and for the reasons I have just given, shall vote to reject this petition. Conclusion of Speech of Jefferson Davis of Mississippi in the Senate of the United States on the Resolutions of Mr. Clay Relative to Slavery in the Territories, etc., February 13th and 14th, 1850. Sir, it has been asked on several occasions during the present session, what ground of complaint has the South? Is this agitation in the two halls of Congress, in relation to the domestic institutions of the South, no subject for complaint? Is the denunciation heaped upon us by the press of the North, and the attempts to degrade us in the eyes of Christendom, to arraign the character of our people and the character of our fathers from whom our institutions are derived, no subject for complaint? Is this sectional organization, for the purpose of hostility to our portion of the Union, no subject for complaint? Would it not, between foreign nations, nations not bound together and restrained as we are by compact, would it not, I say, be just cause for war? What difference is there between organizations for circulating incendiary documents 
and promoting the escape of fugitives from a neighboring state and the organization of an armed force for the purpose of invasion sir a state relying securely on its own strength would rather court the open invasion than the insidious attack and for what end sir is all this aggression they see that the slaves in their present condition in the south are comfortable and happy they see them advancing in intelligence they see the kindest relations existing between them and their masters they see them provided for in age and sickness in infancy and in disability they see them in useful employment restrained from the vicious indulgences to which their inferior nature inclines them they see our penitentiaries never filled and our poorhouses usually empty let them turn to the other hand and see the same race in a state of freedom at the north but instead of the comfort and kindness they receive at the south instead of being happy and useful they are with few exceptions miserable degraded filling the penitentiaries and poorhouses objects of scorn excluded in some places from the schools and deprived of many other privileges and benefits which attach to the white men among whom they live and yet they insist that elsewhere an institution which is proved beneficial to this race shall be abolished that it may be substituted by a state of things which is fraught with so many evils to the race which they claim to be the object of their solicitude do they find in the history of st domingo and in the present condition of jamaica under the recent experiments which have been made upon the institution of slavery and the liberation of blacks before god in his wisdom designed it should be done do they there find anything to stimulate them to future exertion in the cause of abolition or should they not find there satisfactory evidence that their past course was founded in error and is it not the part of integrity and wisdom as soon as they can to retrace their steps should they not immediately cease from a course mischievous in every stage and finally tending to the greatest catastrophe we may dispute about measures but as long as parties have nationality as long as it is a difference of opinion between individuals passing into every section of the country it threatens no danger to the union if the conflicts of party were the only cause of apprehension this government might last forever the last page of human history might contain a discussion in the american congress upon the meaning of some phrase the extent of the power conferred by some grant of the constitution it is sir these sectional divisions which weaken the bonds of union and threaten their final rupture it is not differences of opinion it is geographical lines rivers and mountains which divide state from state and make different nations of mankind are these no subjects of complaint for us and do they furnish no cause for repentance to you have we not a right to appeal to you as brethren of this union have we not a right to appeal to you as brethren bound by the compact of our fathers that you should with due regard to your own rights and interests and constitutional obligations do all that is necessary to preserve our peace and promote our prosperity if sir the seeds of disunion have been sown broadcast over this land i ask by whose hand have they been scattered if sir we are now reduced to a condition when the powers of this government are held subservient to faction if we cannot and dare not legislate for the organization of territorial governments i ask sir who is responsible for it 
and I can with proud reliance say, it is not the South. It is not the South. Sir, every charge of disunion which is made on that part of the South which I in part represent, and whose sentiments I well understand, I here pronounce to be grossly calumnious. The conduct of the State of Mississippi in calling a convention has already been introduced before the Senate, and on that occasion I stated, and now repeat, that it was the result of patriotism and a high resolve to preserve, if possible, our constitutional union, that all its proceedings were conducted with deliberation, and it was composed of the first men of the state. The Chief Justice, a man well known for his high integrity, for his powerful intellect, for his great legal attainments, and his ability in questions of constitutional law, presided over that convention. After calm and mature deliberation, resolutions were adopted, not in the spirit of disunion, but announcing in the first resolution of the series their attachment to the Union. They call on their brethren of the South to unite with them in their holy purpose of preserving the Constitution, which is its only bond and reliable hope. This was their object, and for this and no other purpose do they propose to meet in general convention at Nashville. As I stated on a former occasion, this was not a party movement in Mississippi. The presiding officer belongs to the political minority in the state. The two parties in the state were equally represented in the numbers of the convention, and its deliberations assume no partisan or political character whatever. It was the result of primary meetings in the counties, an assemblage of men known throughout the state, having first met and intimated to those counties a time when the state convention should, if deemed proper, be held. Every movement was taken with deliberation, and every movement then taken was wholly independent of the action of anybody else, unless it be intended, by the remarks made here, to refer its action to the great principles of those who have gone before us, and who have left us the rich legacy of the free institutions under which we live. If it be attempted to assign the movement of the nullification tenets of South Carolina, as my friend near me seemed to understand, then I say you must go further back and impute it to the state rights and strict construction doctrines of Madison and Jefferson. You must refer these in their turn to the principles in which originated the revolution and separation of these then colonies from England. You must not stop there, but go back still further to the bold spirit of the ancient barons of England. That spirit has come down to us, and in that spirit has all the actions since been taken. We will not permit aggressions. We will defend our rights, and if it be necessary, we will claim from this government, as the barons of England claim from John, the grant of another Magna Carta for our protection. Sir, I can consider it as a tribute of respect to the character for candor and sincerity which the South maintains, that every movement which occurs in the southern states is closely scrutinized, and the assertion of a determination to maintain their constitutional rights is denounced as a movement of disunion, while violent denunciations against the Union are now made, and for years have been made, at the North, by associations, by presses and conventions, yet are allowed to pass unnoticed as the idle wind. I suppose for the simple reason that nobody believed there was any danger in them. It is, then, I say, a tribute paid to the sincerity of the South, 
that every movement of hers is watched with such jealousy. But what shall we think of the love for the union of those in whom this brings us corresponding change of conduct, who continue the wanton aggravations which have produced and justify the action they deprecate? Is it well? Is it wise? Is it safe to disregard these manifestations of public displeasure, though it be the displeasure of a minority? Is it proper or prudent or respectful when a representative, in accordance with the known will of his constituents, addresses you the language of solemn warning in conformity to his duty to the Constitution, the Union, and to his own conscience, that his course should be arraigned as the declaration of ultra-and-dangerous opinions? If these warnings were received in the spirit in which they are given, it would augur better for the country. It would give hopes which are now denied us if the press of the country, that great lever of public opinion, would enforce these warnings and bear them to every cottage instead of heaping abuse upon those whose love of ease would prompt them to silence, whose speech, therefore, is evidence of sincerity. Lightly and loosely, representatives of Southern people have been denounced as disunionists by that portion of the Northern press which most disturbs the harmony and endangers the perpetuity of the Union. Such even has been my own case, though the man does not breathe at whose door the charge of disunion might not as well be laid as at mine. The son of a revolutionary soldier, attachment to this Union was among the first lessons of my childhood bred to the service of my country from boyhood to mature age i wore its uniform through the brightest portion of my life i was accustomed to see our flag historic emblem of the union rise with the rising and fall with the setting sun i look upon it now with the affection of early love and seek to preserve it by a strict adherence to the constitution from which it had its birth and by the nurture of which its stars have come so much to outnumber its original stripes. Shall that flag, which has gathered fresh glory in every war, and become more radiant still by the conquest of peace, shall that flag now be torn by domestic faction and trodden in the dust by sectional rivalry? Shall we of the South, who have shared equally with you all your toils, all your dangers, all your adversities, and who equally rejoice in your prosperity and your fame, shall we be denied those benefits guaranteed by our compact, or gathered as the common fruits of a common country? If so, self-respect requires that we should assert them, and, as best we may, maintain that which we could not surrender without losing your respect as well as our own. If, sir, this spirit of sectional aggrandizement, or if, gentlemen prefer this love they bear for the african race shall cause the disunion of these states the last chapter of our history will be a sad commentary upon the justice and the wisdom of our people that this union replete with blessings to its own citizens and diffusive of hope to the rest of mankind should fall a victim to a selfish aggrandizement and a pseudo-philanthropy prompting one portion of the Union to war upon the domestic rights and peace of another, would be a deep reflection on the good sense and patriotism of our day and generation. But, sir, if this last chapter in our history shall ever be written, the reflective reader will ask, whence proceeded this hostility of the North against the South? 
he will find it there recorded that the south in opposition to her own immediate interests engaged with the north in the unequal struggle of the revolution he will find again that when northern seamen were impressed their brethren of the south considered it cause for war and entered warmly into the contest with the haughty power then claiming to be mistress of the seas he will find that the south afar off unseen and unheard toiling in the pursuits of agriculture had filled the shipping and supplied the staple for manufactures which enriched the north he will find that she was the great consumer of northern fabrics that she not only paid for these their fair value in the markets of the world but that she also paid their increased value derived from the imposition of revenue duties and if still further he seeks for the cause of this hostility it at last is to be found in the fact that the south held the african race in bondage being the descendants of those who were mainly purchased from the people of the north and this was the great cause for this the north claimed that the south should be restricted from future growth that around her should be drawn as it were a sanitary cordon to prevent the extension of a moral leprosy and if for that it shall be written that the south resisted it would be but in keeping with every page she has added to the history of our country it depends on those in the majority to say whether this last chapter in our history shall be written or not it depends on them now to decide whether the strife between the different sections shall be arrested before it has become impossible or whether it shall proceed to a final catastrophe i sir and i only speak for myself am willing to meet any fair proposition to settle upon anything which promises security for the future anything which assures me of permanent peace and i am willing to make whatever sacrifice i may properly be called on to render for that purpose nor sir is it a light responsibility if i strictly measured my conduct by the late message of the governor and the recent expressions of opinion in my state i should have no power to accept any terms save the unqualified admission of the equal rights of the citizens of the south to go into any of the territories of the united states with any and every species of property held among us i am willing however to take my share of the responsibility which the crisis of our country demands i am willing to rely on the known love of the people i represent for the whole country and the abiding respect which i know they entertain for the union of these states if sir i distrusted their attachment to our government and if i believed that they had that restless spirit of disunion which has been ascribed to the south i should know full well that i had no such foundation as this to rely upon no such great reserve in the heart of the people to fall back upon in the hour of accountability mr president is there such incompatibility of interest between the two sections of this country that they cannot profitably live together does the agriculture of the south injure the manufactures of the north on the other hand are they not their life-blood and think you if one portion of the union however great it might be in commerce and manufactures was separated from all the agricultural districts that it would long maintain its supremacy if any one so believes let him turn to the written history of commercial states let him look upon the mouldering palaces of venice let him ask for the faded purple of tyre and visit the ruins of carthage 
There he will see written the fate of every country which rests its prosperity on commerce and manufactures alone. United we have grown to our present dignity and power. United we may go on to a destiny which the human mind cannot measure. Separated, I feel that it requires no prophetic eye to see that the portion of the country which is now scattering the seeds of disunion to which I have referred will be that which will suffer the most. Grass will grow on the pavements now worn by the constant tread of the human throng which waits on commerce, and shipping will abandon your ports for those which now furnish the staples of trade. And we, who produce the great staples upon which your commerce and manufactures rest, we will produce those staples still. Shipping will fill our harbors. And why may we not found the tire of modern commerce within our own limits? Why may we not bring the manufactures to the side of agriculture and commerce, too, the ready servant of both? But, sir, I have no disposition to follow this subject. I certainly can derive no pleasure from the contemplation of anything which can impair the prosperity of any portion of this Union, and I only refer to it that those who suppose we are tied by interest or fear should look the question in the face and understand that it is mainly a feeling of attachment to the Union which is long bound and now binds the South. But, Mr. President, I ask Senators to consider how long affection can be proof against such trial and injury and provocation as the South is continually receiving. The case in which this discrimination against the South is attempted, the circumstances under which it was introduced, render it especially offensive. It will not be difficult to imagine the feeling with which a Southern soldier during the Mexican War received the announcement that the House of Representatives had passed that odious measure, the Wilmot Proviso, and that he, although then periling his life, abandoning all the comforts of home, and sacrificing his interests, was, by the legislature of his country, marked as coming from a portion of the Union which was not entitled to the equal benefits of whatever might result from the service to which he was contributing whatever power he possessed nor will it be difficult to conceive of the many sons of the South whose blood has stained those battlefields, whose ashes now mingle with Mexican earth, that some, when they last looked on the flag of their country, may have felt their dying moments embittered by the recollection that that flag cast not an equal shadow of protection over the land of their birth, the graves of their parents, and the homes of their children so soon to be orphans. Sir, I ask Northern Senators to make the case their own, to carry to their own firesides the idea of such intrusion and offensive discrimination as is offered to us. Realize these irritations so galling to the humble, so intolerable to the haughty, and wake before it is too late from the dream that the South will tamely submit. Measure the consequences to us of your assumption, and ask yourselves whether as a free honorable and brave people would you submit to it it is essentially the characteristic of the chivalrous that they never speculate upon the fears of any man and i trust that no such speculations will be made upon the idea that may be entertained in any quarter that the south from fear of her slaves is necessarily opposed to a dissolution of the union she has no such fear her slaves would be to her now as they were in the revolution an element of military strength. 
I trust that no speculations will be made upon either the condition or the supposed weakness of the South. They will bring sad disappointments to those who indulge them. Rely upon her devotion to the Union. Rely upon the feeling of fraternity she inherited and has never failed to manifest. Rely upon the nationality and freedom from sedition which have in all ages characterized an agricultural people. Give her justice, sheer justice, and the reliance will never fail you. Then, Mr. President, I ask that some substantial proposition may be made by the majority in regard to this question. It is for those who have the power to pass it to propose one. It is for those who are threatening us with the loss of that which we are entitled to enjoy, to state, if there be any compromise, what that compromise is. We are unable to pass any measure if we propose it, therefore I have none to suggest. We are unable to bend you to any terms which we may offer. We are under the ban of your purpose. Therefore, from you, if from anywhere, the proposition must come. I trust that we shall meet it and bear the responsibility as becomes us, that we shall not seek to escape from it, that we shall not seek to transfer to other places or other times or other persons that responsibility which devolves upon us and I hope the earnestness which the occasion justifies will not be mistaken for the ebullition of passion, nor the language of warning be construed as a threat. We cannot, without the most humiliating confession of the supremacy of faction, evade our constitutional obligations, and our obligations under the treaty with Mexico to organize governments in the territories of California and New Mexico. I trust that we will not seek to escape from the responsibility and leave the country unprovided for, unless, by an irregular admission of new states, that we will act upon the good example of Washington in the case of Tennessee, and of Jefferson in the case of Louisiana, that we will not, if we abandon those high standards, do more than come down to modern examples, that we will not go further than to permit those who have the forms of government under the Constitution to assume sovereignty over territory of the United States, that we may at least, I say, assert the right to know who they are, how many they are, where they voted, how they voted, and whose certificate is presented to us of the fact, before it is conceded to them to determine the fundamental law of the country, and to prescribe the conditions on which other citizens of the United States may enter it. To reach all this knowledge, we must go through the intermediate stage of territorial government. How will you determine what is the seal, and who are the officers of a community unknown as an organized body to the Congress of the United States? Can the right be admitted in that community to usurp the sovereignty over territory which belongs to the states of the Union? All these questions must be answered before I can consent to any such irregular proceeding as that which is now presented in the case of California. Mr. President, thanking the Senate for the patience they have shown toward me, I again express the hope that those who have the power to settle this distracting question, those who have the ability to restore peace, concord, and lasting harmony to the United States, will give us some substantial proposition such as magnanimity can offer, and such as we can honorably accept. I, being one of the minority in the Senate and the Union, have nothing to offer, 
except an assurance of cooperation in anything which my principles will allow me to adopt, and which promises permanent substantial security. End of Appendix C. Recording by Sean Stipsky, Kingman, Arizona.